Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I am an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. And this is Phil Stevens. I run Strength Guild, the powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, and just uh, all around skinny guy right now getting ready to get bigger again. Skinny. At 257. Oh, skinny bastard. <laughs> <We> am- <laughs> uh, is Dr. Mike T. Nelson. Uh, creator of the Flex Diet Cert, uh, owner of Extreme Human Performance, uh, back member of the Kerrig Institute, and currently recording this live outside in uh, Hood River, Oregon. So I got oh. to head forward yesterday and the day before when we got here, so it's been pretty fun. Is it that where people get bit by great white sharks and stuff? Mm, I no? don't think so. I mean, it's on the Columbia River, so it's freshwater. Unless oh, oh, <laughs> okay. I'm that far in. I guess we haven't <laughs> seen one yet if they do. I see. Okay. Uh, they're the big hype board for cancer uh, race today, this weekend, and stuff. So, Right on. All right, everybody. We have um, a mail and news episode. So we're going to cover everything from ketogenic diets to CBD oil, um, some stuff on intermittent fasting. Uh, there's some regulatory news coming down the pike I think people should be aware of or at least might want to be aware of as far as um, what's happening in the food industry. Uh, but first, uh, Phil, you were just talking about – is it a new film? Strength and Muscle Sport News. Yeah, it's a new show on the History Channel. Okay, show. That, uh, that we, we just fill everybody in on. It's uh, the strongest in history. Um, the strongest men in history or something like that. So basically what they've done is they've taken uh, Brian Shaw, Eddie Hall, Nick Best, and Robert Oberst, and they're traveling all over the world. And basically these guys are taking on the legends of strength. So just legends out there that have been around forever. Like they just did the the first one, I think it was, you know, battling the Vikings or something like that. And in history years ago, some – Guy, I don't know his name because it's well Viking. I can't remember <laughs> it, but uh, he like put the the mast of a ship on his shoulders, supposedly in the legend, and took three steps before he broke his own back, and it was fourteen hundred and thirty three pounds. So they had to, you know, apparently attempt to repeat that. Okay. And uh, the Denny Stones and just famous things like that. A lot of the stuff that uh, John Paul Anderson did and, and things, and then they follow him. They try to recreate these things. Um. And see how these guys do. So it's just a, I figured it's a very uh, fitting show for our show. Seems like it'd be fun to watch. So I figured I'd fill everybody in. Yeah. That sounds awesome to watch. I got to check yeah. it out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Because you often. So it's a History Channel thing. History Channel. Mm-hmm. So often you hear uh, people talk about, are we really stronger than we used to be? You know, yeah. stuff like that. And it's just, it's sort of a challenge like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, when you first said that, my gut reaction is I would like to see someone try to, like, um, 
that the story of Milo like carry a calf yeah, on his back. A cow. Yeah, a cow or a cat, <laughs> just a calf of some kind, yeah. you know, small one maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's going way but back. If you go on if you go on History Channel, it has like the whole list of things they're gonna recreate. You know, has the Denny Stones and then stories of Denny and Thomas Topman and you know and just everybody that they're kinda trying to uh to recreate what they did. So right. I know the uh the one with Paul Anderson they filled Oh, the 55-gallon drums or big barrels up with nothing but coins. And it, they, huh. they went on there and added it up, and it was like, man, if this thing was full, it'd be like 3,000 pounds. So they're trying to wonder if he actually, you know, maybe they only filled the front of it, made him appear to feel full, or he actually freaking did this. So, but... uh Oh, wow, yeah. Yeah. Because as you guys know, like, a lot of the history of some of the events are very... No one's really sure. Like, even, like, the Thomas Inch dumbbell, you know, mm. did he... One of the rumors, its most popular rumor, is that you know Inch didn't really ever lift it that much in his shows. That he had, he did, but maybe it was a smaller version that was lighter. You know, that maybe someone had a magnet at that time underneath that would hold it to the stage as other people tried it, or maybe yeah. he had a real one just to have people try to see if they could do it, which nobody did. And then he had stuck a little tiny uh, screw into the side of the the bell. That people wouldn't know that it was there, and what that does is that stops the rotation of it because it's a solid cast, you know, 173 pound dumbbell. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the the feats are, you know, a lot of them are probably real, like the Diddy Stones. That's one pretty well documented that you know a lot of people yeah. have you know done that over the course of history. But you know, some of the other ones with the original person doing it are still very debatable too. So, mm-hmm. all right, yeah. all right. Well, Mike, since uh, you're up here. <laughs> Let's, let me ask you just quickly before we move on about last week. Uh, there was a news blurb that yeah. CBD oil caused liver stress or liver damage, or so, I think it was elevated liver enzymes. Have you heard anything, or what's your input on that? Yeah, I haven't seen anything in the research on that, to be honest. Um, I mean, even pretty high doses, although the high doses that have been used in research are generally shorter studies. Um, however, if you look at the research for Epidiolex, which is basically a CBD drug that's been approved by the FDA, right? Uh, the doses for that are on the higher end of the spectrum. And obviously, if you're going to get a drug approved, you have to show toxicology results and stuff. And that's generally used more in kids, too. It's usually younger people who have that type of epilepsy that seems to work good for um, as far as I know, if there was any issue with liver in that, you know, probably would not have gotten approved. Um, the other literature, I haven't seen anything either, but, eh, you know, maybe in sensitive people, maybe if, you know, someone's taking just a gargantuan amount, but it's probably unlikely just right now because of the cost. You know, even to get into the 100 milligram dose range is very expensive. So, maybe, but, yeah, I... I, I haven't seen anything that really has me too worried about it yet. Okay. Yeah, apparently there is a warning on Epidiolex about uh, sure. liver stress or something like that. But there are a lot of meds, I think, that kind of yeah. have that sort of suggestion. But, you know, it is worth it for people just to sort of keep that in mind, you know, maybe get your oh, liver yeah. enzymes checked every once in a while or something. Can't be much worse than Tylenol. <laughs> you <laughs> know, amen. <laughs> amen to that. I have a warning that can increase you know liver enzymes so they'll be checked for it but 
Yeah, exactly. Like Tylenol is one of the worst ones. So toxic. That. Yeah, toxic. So um, in fact, yeah, we've talked about that in the past before, but um, I've read papers where they needed to induce liver or kidney damage in mice, and they, they did it with acetaminophen. That's what they use. Yeah, that's what they yeah. use. Uh, and then they yeah. would see how they could protect against it with other nutrients or whatnot, you know. And Anyway, okay. Um, all right, let's, let's get to some of the listener mails here. This first one is from Neil. He says, uh, hi, I hope you are well. I stumbled across your article and just had to send this over to you. I haven't looked at the reference study, but this seems to be a misguided decision. I hope you enjoy. Uh, Neil, this is from the Military Times. Um, it's interesting where they're going with this, and it looks like Jeff Volek is involved, and when he's involved, I'm usually happier <laughs> about it, you know, um, not to be, like, biased, but um, he knows what he's doing. Anyway, this says Defense Department to ban beer and pizza. Uh, yeah, I saw that. Mandatory keto diet may enhance military performance. This is by Christine Freba, F-R-O-E-B-A. It says the controversial ketogenic diet or keto diet may be the future of the military, some defense officials say. Uh, it goes on to say, while a nutritionally enhanced future could eventually be put into effect for all branches, the SEALs uh, and the underwater dive mission specialists might be the first groups targeted. And there's a reason for that. Um, Lisa Sanders, the director of science and tech uh, at U.S. Special Operations Command, presented an Ohio State University study that recommends the nutritional change based on the keto diet, which, of course, is high in fat and low in carb. It says, quote, one of the effects of truly being in ketosis is that it changes the way your body handles oxygen deprivation so you can actually stay underwater at depth for longer periods. So that's an interesting kind of angle on this that you don't normally hear. Uh, it says... The dietary change would result in the dining facilities serving things like Ezekiel bread, uh, zucchini, you know, uh, like a pasta spiral alternative with zucchini, um, mashed cauliflower instead of the mashed potatoes, things like that. And then a quote from, uh, from Volek, it just says, the ketogenic diet is high in fat, which is also less costly, and that's appealing to the military. So, uh, Neil, I think... Our take on this has typically been, if you do high-intensity work, it's usually better, especially sustained high-intensity stuff, to have carbohydrates in your diet. Uh, having said that, I've been at conferences before where military special ops guys were talking about voluntarily cutting carbs out of their diets um, to try to deal with jet lag and things like that. So um, it's an interesting angle because of the... Uh, Presumably the oxygen demand. I do know that in a hospital they'll tinker around with pulmonary patients with lower carbohydrate diets and things like that to try to reduce uh, pulmonary stress and pulmonary demand. But that's about as far as I know about this. Mike, you said you saw this? Yeah, I had some buddies send it to me because yeah, several years ago I actually presented to uh, DARPA on a similar topic and I was presenting on metabolic flexibility. So, you know, how do you take. Um, certain aspects of the military from a nutrition or even exercise standpoint and make them more prepared to handle different situations, but do it with less resources, right? Because one of the, the hard parts is 
all the resources that comes with it, everything from gas to the vehicles to the food to everything else. Um, so they were looking for what are some of the alternate methods and things that we can do for that. Um, I mean, uh, you know, Don D'Agostino has worked on this for quite a while. I mean, he's been sponsored by um, Naval uh, Research. And they've known for a while that the ketogenic diet can help with some of those, especially with uh, oxygen toxicity from uh, SEAL divers that have to use rebreathers. So rebreathers don't have any bubbles because it's not going to be very sneaky if you're using scuba and you just see a trail of bubbles coming <laughs> towards you. Right. Um, and that's where a lot of the research they did initially came from ketone esters, right? Because that way you could give them to people before a mission, possibly put them into a high state of uh, ketosis via exogenous a supplement. And uh, early work seems to show that it does have a protective effect against oxygen uh, toxicity. So that's where a lot of that work came from. And then we have the different types of salts and things of that nature. Um, I mean, I worked with a couple of special ops people that, you know, two of them came to me because they uh, they were not doing a lot of uh, diving missions, but had done a ketogenic diet because they read it was supposed to be better. But they saw a lot of their performance kind of drop off. Um, so we did more of a metabolic flexibility approach using a little bit more fasting and things of that nature. So they could go for long periods of time without calories, still perform pretty well. You know, but when they had to do you know, some type of higher-end performance, they would still have carbohydrates, and a lot of it is a access issue also. Um, and it is true that if you're doing long missions, like having more fat to carry with you is much more calorically dense and doesn't weigh as much, so Absolutely. there are advantages to that. Yeah. But, man, I don't know. When I read that article, I just... Most of the other people I know in the military, if you told them you're going to have to do a ketogenic diet, they would freak out. Mm -hmm. And they don't really have a reason to necessarily do it. I think in some populations, yeah, there's some very good accumulating data that it may be extremely beneficial. But the article read to me like it was just, oh, let's take this idea and let's just apply it to everyone across the military and right. watch all hell break loose. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe, not that I'm a military guy, maybe we have listeners that can chime in, but it might make sense to do something like get in ketosis, do the diving portion of it, and when you crawl sure. up on the beach somewhere, eat some freaking carbs. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I don't yeah. know. And that's why they wanted a supplement, because you know, a lot of <laughs> it, you don't know exactly what's going to happen. You don't know when it's going to happen. And, yeah, you could hang out and maybe ketosis the whole time. But we do know that, you know, if you need some type of max all-out power, that that's going to drop off also. And just eating a bunch of carbs at that point will not right. return that. That's right. Down changes in PDH. Right. Um, so that's why they were kind of looking for a supplement where you could go into ketosis when needed, would have pretty high levels for a period of time. And then you know, it allows you just to be a more uh, flexible type approach. Uh, listeners, Mike's talking when he says PDH, pyruvate dehydrogenase. Yeah. It's an enzymatic – it's a link between glycolysis, which is your main fast carb burning pathway or carb breakdown pathway, and then the aerobic systems, right, that normally you would engage uh, yeah, and it's not as simple as just, I mean, make you feel better, I think, if you were to be able to get done with the diving portion oh, of the mission sure. and eat some carbs. But, yeah, PDH takes a while to then correct. That's, this is one of the reasons why they weren't able to do things like fat loading and then quickly switch to carb loading and get the benefits of both, right, unfortunately, because it's sort of this this lag in the in the adaptation thing. But 
Yeah. And part of it is you're just not running that high-end carbohydrate machinery during that time period. So your body just starts, you know, down-regulating some of those pathways, too, and they don't spring back to life, like, instantly either. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting to see what they're, well, where they're going to go uh, with that. So, All right, um, we have uh, another mail. This is a return email uh, from Michael, from Mike. He just said, uh, it's Mike from last week's email. Uh, he gave us some details about, I think I was sort of warning about chronically consuming large amounts of Red Bull and all this sort of thing. But essentially, he had lost a lot of weight, and I'm really going to cut this way down here, but... Um, he says, I'm wondering if you guys can give me any advice on losing weight uh, and training in a caloric deficit. So he's an, he's an intermediate to advanced lifter. I mean, he's he can bench 315 for a couple of reps. He could squat 405 and deadlift 480. So, I mean, he's not a complete noob for sure, um, but he's in a calorie deficit because he's lost a lot of weight and he wants to get leaner. Uh, and he's just basically asking. Now, there's lots of details in this email four-day-a-week routine. You know, he does some accessory movements. He does 20 minutes of cardio at the end. Um, he's particularly interested in our opinions on intermittent fasting. He said he's listened to us talk about it over the years, but he can't recall where we stand on the subject of intermittent fasting. Uh, his fasting window is 16 hours, and then over eight hours, he eats, uh, that kind of thing. So he's trying to take that approach, and he's lost a lot of weight over time. Um, anyway, thanks for the tips on the training methods that I should try and your two cents on intermittent fasting. Uh, we actually have a news blurb on intermittent fasting. Uh, there's obviously lots of ways to go about it, but Mike, what would, what would be your suggestion about either intermittent fasting or trying to make strength gains in a, in a negative calorie environment, you know? Yeah. And he wants to, he still has a little bit more to go on his, uh, fat loss. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I mean, he started up around 350. His lowest was 235. Uh, I think oh, wow, he, that's a huge difference. Oh, yeah, and I think he mentioned last week that he wants to get down closer to 200. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, he's in a calorie deficit, and he's he's fasting yeah. for periods. And uh, Any ideas? Yeah. I mean, I my bias is if someone comes to me and they're asking, like, hey, what do I do as a client? I don't really start them on a 16-8, although having said that, I have had clients who had been doing that and, you know, seemed to like it and were getting good results with it, so I didn't necessarily change it. Um, if you look at the, there's you know, one study that, yeah, maybe showed some benefit to it, but there's not a ton of studies on a 16-8 fasting. My bias and something that he may consider is if he's been in a caloric deficit for a long period of time, and he's obviously been very successful at it, he may take kind of a diet break or a period of time and just see if he can kind of maintain where he's at, uh, up his calories, trying to make you know weight stable within you know plus or minus two, three pounds, somewhere in there. And then I would actually have him back off of some of the fasting and take like four to six weeks and slowly switch over to maybe just one longer fast per week, like a 19 to 24 hour fast per week. And then, you know, up protein, probably a little bit more things of that nature. See how long you can hang out there, be, you know, weight stable for four, six weeks. I mean, the time frame is a little bit debatable and then probably try to go back down again. I've just noticed in a lot of people, one psychologically that, feels a little bit better uh, too. It 
appears just to be easier to kind of go back down then again, especially if he's come down from uh, a long ways, which he has. Um, that'd be kind of my bias, but you know, if he's still making good progress and he's still losing weight on the 16.8, and he and you know doesn't feel like it's that horrible, yeah, you could probably keep going on that. But if he feels like it's getting to be hard and he's kind of hitting the plateau, I'd probably take a time period off and just slowly increase calories, try to keep weight stable, and then go at it again. Yeah, it's often been my bias. I mean, at least with a refeed, because my wife and I will sometimes do this. We'll do like um, sort of Chris Shugart's pulse fasting idea where we'll just yeah. kind of sip on real low-dose whey protein or a little bit of leucine and, and protein mixed and really nothing else for a day, you know. And then the next day when we refeed, we don't go nuts on donuts, right? Because, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, some of the data I've seen was, was is just scary as far as – LPL, some of these enzymes that are really triggered to store every calorie you eat, they're heightened. And so when when we do the refeed, we try to keep it, you know, not junk food, not processed food kind of thing. Um, I don't know if that's really going to help much, but that's at least how we do it. Um, let me ask Phil, though. I mean, does anybody train in a calorie deficit at Strength Guild. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have a couple of people that have just went down some, but the vast majority are just always looking to go up. But, uh, yeah, we have some, and I have some people that mess around with some fasting and stuff like that. When I when I cut down, it'll be three years ago now or whatever it is, I cut down for my 40th birthday, and that's when I went down and competed right at 220. Um I messed around with some fasting, but it was that it was something we talked. Me and you had talked about. It was like the protein modified fast. So I had yeah. two days where, like, all I got in was my protein. When you work up your calculations, that's only like eight hundred calories or whatever. So I get a couple hundred grams of protein. Um, so it was two very for me, <laughs> uh, very low calorie days. Um, and like I'd have chicken breast or tuna or shakes, <clears throat> you know, a couple days a week, and that kept my calories pretty low on those days and then my other days were back to still super clean because I was dieting but like I'd have my rice and things like that on those other days and I I mean I kept a lot of strength I mean I was able to go in and well I still squatted 650 and deadlifted almost 7 and, and stuff like that so um, I had a much lower body weight but yeah I mean we do it I mean the biggest thing for me is like saving strength is I think most people mess up not as much on the diet, but as on the training. And they, yeah. I, it's time to lose weight. So what am I going to do? I'm going to do a bunch of volume, <laughs> and that's just idiotic to me. I mean, and I never even understood why bodybuilders did that. Like, okay, yeah. it's time to get ready for the show. I'm not going to eat anything, and I'm going to train endless sets of volume. high rep. Yeah, and it's burn like, the cuts, have, bro. You have no fuel to recover from that. <laughs> you know. So what I did is I kept training very spot on, very lower volume. And uh, trying to keep intensity up, you know, eighty percent ish or so. Um, yep. So I hang yep. on to as much strength as I could. Yeah. You know, and I knew I I couldn't recover from it, so it was, my strength training was a little shorter, and then I'd do more walking and things like that. So um, that's going to be your deal. And yeah, I'm sure so far he has probably even gained strength, but that was because he had so much in reserve. If you know what I'm saying, he's coming from three thirty or whatever. Yeah. yeah, he was walking around with a lunch pail. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, attached to him. Right. Yeah. That his body could pull from at any time. Now he's getting to that point where it's a little more important. You know, and things probably will start going down. So I mean, it's 
one of the things I have to deal with with my lifters that are going down is making them realize best case scenario, once you're fairly strong, you know, intermediate or starting to get advanced is best case scenario is we keep you as strong as you are. Yeah. That's what we're really shooting for. And and if it goes up somehow magically, then we're super happy. But really, we're trying as best as we can to not go backwards while they're going down. Yeah. So it's interesting to hear you talk about the strength preservation because for me it was always lean mass preservation. You yes. know, with with similar I think similar approach, right? Which is oh, yeah. late in the diet, I would always try to make sure that I could stay in that sort of 85-ish percent, even if it was just for a handful of reps, because I knew if that if I was, for example, like two weeks before my last competition, I just wanted to be sure that I could get a couple reps, even if it was two out of 405 in the squat, right? Because to me, that, that was my usual heavy set, and it was usually more than two reps, but I thought, I'm going to lose some, but if I can yeah. just do that, then I can't be that much smaller, you know, yeah, as an exactly. idea. Um, and yeah, and to your point too, right? Like more like heavy negatives and things that are less metabolically draining, mm-hmm. um, but could still, you know, activate stem cells or you know preserve muscle mass or whatever. I wasn't under any delusion that I was going to ignite hypertrophy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like huge exactly. gains uh, in, in that last month or six weeks or whatever. But anyway, oh, and um, Mike, as far as at least my opinion, I think you, I, I sort of stated this, but we do a little bit of intermittent fasting in my house, but it's more like the extended type thing where we take a whole day and it's sort of just, you know, low dose. Yeah. Like you were saying, Phil, the protein sparing modified mm-hmm. fast. I'm so paranoid not being a very big person. Uh, now uh, the, our listener here, Mike is a little bit different. He's a bigger dude. Uh, but I was always so paranoid about losing muscle mass that that's why I, I like to slip in that little bit of leucine and low dose protein, you know, every two hours or so, uh, throughout those otherwise fasting days, you know, and I've always found that actually, I know Mike likes the stimulants a little bit. I would too. I would lean a little heavier on the, uh, caffeine and dietary stimulants because I think it helps curb appetite so you don't completely wig out you know the the drawback to that would be protein and caffeine and and little else and i'm just peeing constantly you know the other time i use them is and i don't even know i don't even call them a fast but a good portion of my year is spent going upwards which means i'm eating all the time even at night so i mean like when i'm going up to because i'm getting ready to go up to 308 i'll be like okay i gotta wake up and pee and i'll go eat um, and I have to, to get up there. So when I'm in off season, like I was, you know, I lost 50 pounds off this last meet. Um, basically I, I eat at dinner and then I try not to eat till the next day at 10. That's more to give myself my digestive track and my mouth a break, a rest, you yeah. know, from just being fed all mentally the time and too. actually mentally. And then, yeah. And just giving a, like, basically when I'm going up, there's always something going through my digestive tract. And it's like, give it a break, bro. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it's it's kind of nice to to actually, hey, you're hungry. I haven't felt that. <laughs> you know, what is that feeling? That's funny. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. So I'll, I'll like eat, and you know, we eat late because I I'm at the gym till seven thirty, but so we'll eat at like eight, and then I would I won't eat till like ten o'clock the next day. So what is that fourteen hours? And I'll wake up and go to the gym, have coffee, you know, train them. At, at 5.30 and then come back home, get some things done, and then finally eat around 10. So Okay, yeah. That's kind of off-season type stuff for me. Right. So. 
All right. Uh, that sounds good. Uh, everybody, we're about halfway through. We're going to take a break. When we come back, there's actually some new research on uh, fasting and how it affects your immune system. We've got some stuff here on uh, regulatory news as far as there's actually a push to the U.S. Department of Agriculture for, to change the dietary guidelines. Uh, we'll see if you agree or disagree with that stuff. Um, and then there's some stuff on artificial sweeteners that I found very interesting. So we'll be back. Hey, listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single digit uh, royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Okay, everybody, we're back with a mail and news episode. We're going to move on to uh, more specifically news the first bit here directly refers to the listener mail about intermittent fasting. Uh, I actually got this from my wife. She uh, checks out a lot of blogs and peer-reviewed stuff on the, the mental health side of things. But this is from themindunleashed.com. So take that for what it's worth. It's Christina Sarich. Uh, but there's references, right? There's direct links to peer-reviewed stuff in here. It says research... Colon, fasting for 72 hours can reboot the entire immune system. This could be particularly beneficial for people suffering from damaged immune systems. 
So I started looking at this stuff uh, after she was talking about it. I'm like, hey, can you send me that? Um, essentially, it says the practice of fasting to try to reboot or stimulate your immune system. Uh, it isn't without criticism from modern nutritionists, but research does imply that when you're hungry in short spurts, it can kickstart stem cells um, in your bones, right, bone marrow, and produce new leukocytes, right, white blood cells. Of course, that's your body's military in a sense, right, D defending you from viruses and bacteria and even involved in muscle remodeling, which I think a lot of people don't realize, like when you're really sore. Um, anyway, it says scientists at the University of Southern California uh, found that fasting can be particularly beneficial for people suffering from damaged immune systems. And when you think about, like, who would have a damaged immune system? Well, someone on chemotherapy, right, for cancer treatment or um, somebody with an autoimmune disorder. Sometimes they have hyperactive immunity. There's actually quite a bit of that with the women in my family. It's more common among women, a lot of the autoimmune stuff. But, uh, but it basically says intermittent fasting can trigger stem cells. Uh, that, that's according to uh, a news bit from USC, uh, University of Southern California. Uh, and then they also refer to this Walter Longo, uh, this researcher. It says Longo's work suggests that if the fasting body is able to rejuvenate and multiply bone marrow cells uh, that are responsible for blood and immunity, right, then by definition these hematopoietic stem cells are kicked in and you get, you know, a, an immune reboot sort of thing. Uh, and then the article goes on just to say what fast is right for you. And I think this is what actually caught my eye as far as listeners, right? There's lots of ways to go about these different fasts. We already talked about a couple of them, but one is water fasting where you consume only water. Now, what Phil and I have tended to do is just throw a little bit of, uh, you know, protein in here and there with that, but still low dose, right? I'm not talking about having one, two, three scoops of protein at a time here. Um, but there's straight-up intermittent fasting. Um, there's working out on an empty stomach. And you can find a lot of good research. Like uh, Asker Jukendrup does a lot of that kind of stuff, right? Like what are all the different ways you can manipulate carb stores in your body? But they talk about working out on an empty stomach um, and that sort of thing. So lots of ways to kind of do this. But I just thought it was interesting because of the connection uh, with immune function. Uh, and if you're having sort of problems that this says fasting for 72 hours has a profound impact on that. So we'll have to see where that comes out. I look, a lot of this just looks like it's sort of um, it might be a somewhat selective, you know, cherry picking of the literature. Uh, but, you know, like I said, there are there's real work in here from the Journal of Cell Biology and other things like that. So interesting stuff with immune function. Yeah, the only downside of that is that, <clears throat> I mean, his stuff is, like, super fascinating, and I know a fair amount of people have kind of done his fasting-mimicking dieting, and I think there's some very good mechanistic research on it, but again, that's mostly only in animals right now. Um, but, you know, having said that, if you've got a bunch of immune issues and other things going on and your physician's okay with it, it may be an option to to try out because if it's done in an intelligent manner, there's not too much of a downside to it either. Um, but yeah, I find it like super interesting. But it, at the same time, I think a lot of the claims around it right now are a little bit overextended based on some of the animal data. But it'll be super interesting to see where it goes. I know it's not it's not about sports nutrition, but my concern, I guess I'd be one of those nutritionists that would be a little concerned. If, if I've got a patient 
well, not mine, the physician's patient, but if I'm working with a patient that has cancer, um, already, if they're on chemo and that sort of thing, they could be under eating, and I don't want to. Sure. I don't want to have them go for uh, one, two, three days and not eat on purpose. They're already under eating, and I'd be afraid they'd lose muscle mass. And when that happens to a certain extent, then your immune system suffers in other ways. You know that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, like you said, under some kind of supervision, probably if you're doing it for immune reasons like that. Yeah, and I think it, although it's extremely preliminary, there is some early data showing that, you know, fasting around the time of chemotherapy may be beneficial. But exactly what you said is that you don't have a lot of hard data on that, especially in humans. You don't have a randomized controlled trial on that yet. And that depending on the specific case, if you have a nausea all the time, you're probably chronically under-eating. So now right. you've got to kind of weigh exactly what you said, the loss of muscle or even just body mass with, you know, what's a theoretical uh, benefit, you know, to this. And that's where it becomes pretty, pretty tricky. Yeah. When you get patients on chemo and radiation and whatnot, I mean, a lot of foods, uh, you'll hear patients talk about how everything tastes metallic. Well, that's not appetizing at all, yeah. you know, and so, yeah, and they're nauseous and vomiting or, yeah, it's, that's sticky business. Uh, let's get on to some stuff that's a little bit lighter. Uh, let's see what you guys think about this. I was a little surprised at this. Uh, I think our listeners know, if you've listened to us for a few years, that when there's new dietary guidelines or new label uh, regulations on food, people come out of the woodwork to lobby, right? And, present, and the FDA or the USDA is like, okay, we'll have sort of little hearings. And uh, we've actually had some people on the show friends of the show who have actually gone to these uh, to make a comment. So they try to get public comments and they try to be big about it. But this one says uh, 50 plus U.S. doctors urged the USDA to overhaul the U.S. dietary guidelines. Now, that sounds very interesting. Like, why are doctors coming out of the woodwork um, to do this? Part of the reason is, of course, the advisory committee is re making reviews for what's going to be yeah. the 2020 through 2025 guidelines. But then you start to see the, like, the lobbying, the industry influence. Um, so these guidelines are uh, getting reviewed. Will they change or not? Right. And uh, listeners, the dietary guidelines, I've always thought not to sound sacrilegious, but they're kind of like the Ten Commandments of Nutrition. You know, like what are the basic tenets? of what you should be doing. The most recent ones I actually like, there was a lot of comments in there about dietary patterns and not individual nutrients or even individual foods, but what kind of patterns? Like the Mediterranean diet is a pattern, right? With lots of uh, fruits and vegetables and seafood and olive oil, you know, that kind of stuff. Or like you might think like um, there's a word for it. If we have a Japanese listener, maybe you can enlighten me. I can't remember what the word is, but the Japanese have a particular word for their pattern of eating, you know, where there's green tea and soy and seafood and, you know, that kind of stuff. Anyway, um, these new guidelines are getting reviewed, and it says, here we go, spearheaded by Atkins Nutritionals, a subsidiary of the Simply Good Foods Company. Uh, this letter from these physicians highlights that 72% of Americans have a body mass index in the overweight or obese range. Actually, I think all three of us are there. <laughs> for various reasons, <laughs> <laughs> high BMI. Um, but this disturbed me. I've never seen it put this way. 52% of Americans have either diabetes or prediabetes. Oh, my God. Now, I've heard that a third of us 
have prediabetes, right? So metabolic syndrome, essentially, fatty liver, low HDL, you know, hypertension, gut fat. Um, but yeah, 52%, so more than half of everyone now either has diabetes or is on their way to diabetes. Um, it says, quote, we believe that it is critical for the U.S. government to overhaul the U.S. dietary guidelines, recognizing a lower carbohydrate eating approach. So I have mixed thoughts about this. I think lower carbohydrate is a good idea. Uh, it was interesting that Volek was saying how cheap fatty foods are because there's an awful lot of cheap refined carb foods as well. Yeah. Um, now, I'm not talking about transport and weight and all that because I'm totally on board with what you said, Mike, about fats have nine calories in yeah. a gram, right? I mean, if, if you if you need to eat 3,000 calories a day, I'm going to take it as fatty foods. Yeah, um, especially if you've got to carry that food with you. Carry it, right. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I don't know, though. Um, it's welcome, like, to have people come give their input for this, but there's an obvious conflict of interest here i think when atkins nutritionals is pushing for the low carb but you now you might say wait a minute lowry you're you know this may be that they they have a lot of data they believe or conclude that this is best and that's why they're doing it right it's not just to get greater sales but of course it's not going to hurt the low carb people who, who sell the low carb stuff uh to have dietary guidelines that mesh with their business plan so, it, it, you know, it's a chicken or egg kind of thing there. But um, I'm actually a fan of lower-carb diets. I think it might be good. I don't know about full-blown, like, ketotic-type diets, you know, and, and all that sort of thing for everybody. But, um, but yeah, I don't know. So that's just some regulatory news coming down the pike. Um, what else we have here? Regulatory news. This one is more controversial even than that last one, but... Plant-Based Food Association sues the state of Mississippi for quote-unquote meat labeling law. Okay? So I definitely want to hear what, what Phil says about this. Well, because I think the, the, the meat, the, you know, the ranchers associations and the beef, you know, organizations and all that, they're trying to say, listen, plant people, um, munching plants is – that's not meat. It's just not. It's not meat. Uh, and so they're trying to get some laws in place, and the plant people are fighting back, okay, because they want plants to be defined as meat. Like, that sounds absurd to me, <laughs> but um, it says the Plant-Based Foods Association, PBFA, joined with member company Upton's Naturals to file a lawsuit in Mississippi challenging the state's new labeling law, which could make using quote-unquote meat terminology to describe plant-based foods subject to criminal penalties. In other words, you can't sell soy or peas or mushroom or whatever non-meats and call it meat you can't do that there'd be criminal penalties it says the law went into effect on july 1st according to the plant-based foods association it's suing to stop the law right saying that only animal products are meat it's suing to stop the law from being enforced in order to protect its members first amendment rights they say to, quote, label their foods in a way that consumers understand. Um, it goes on to say, quote, this Mississippi law is the meat lobby's response to growing consumer demand. In other words, for meat alternatives. They are attacking words on labels instead of competing in the marketplace, says Michelle Simon, PBFA executive director. So I'll, I, I'm just going to stop there. My, to use Mike's term, my bias is that meat is muscle tissue. 
right? Yeah. It's or or muscle cells grown in a vat. Either way, it's you know animal animal based. Um, I I don't know. Uh, Phil, do you have any thoughts on this? Like, should the food industry lay, be more flexible in labeling meat to include plants, or just no? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, it's just yeah. That's that doesn't make any sense to me. It's to me, it's so completely liberal, right? Yeah. That you, like yeah, we're it's, it's so inclusive. Right yeah, we're, we're going to lose the definitions of common things. I'm afraid, yes. you know. Um, yeah. And I don't see why. I mean, if there's consumer demand, if I was a, a vegan, for example. I would want it to say meat substitute if they just start saying meat. Yeah. And I, I don't yeah. know what extent this goes to, right? But if that goes that far, what? I, yeah. I, Sorry, bro. It's not meat. You it's know, not, it's it, not meat. <laughs> it's just not. Yeah. It's just like, uh, I don't know. It's it's all part of this whole PC world that we don't need to get into that right now. We've kind of got into it before. But, like, my mom and dad told me when I was growing up I could be anything I wanted. When I was probably three, I probably wanted to be a dinosaur. I will never be a dinosaur. <laughs> a dinosaur. It's not, no matter how you label. <laughs> you know, right. There right. are just some things. And plants just can't be meat. It's just fact. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to be fair, I think it was the Cattle Growers Association. But when we were at IFT, uh, Institute of Food Technologists, I think it was last year, uh, there was a lot of pushback from, like, the ranchers that even the um, – What's the, what's the in vitro meat called? What are they? They're clean meat n- initiative. Yeah, uh, they didn't like that because they're like that's not meat. There there was no butcher involved. There was no animal involved. I actually think that is meat. I mean, those are muscle cells. Yeah, and it's if I was going to be the quote unquote farmer of these big vats of muscle tissue, um, I wouldn't want to waste a lot of the nutrients and other things. Right? There's lots of things that go into a cow that don't become meat. Uh, and so I think the the clean meat, uh, and that's a loaded term, but I still think that the animal cells grown, if you can do it right in a dish, that's still meat. Uh, but I'm not sure about I mean, even by scientific definition, it is. Yeah, it, it is what it is. Yeah, I mean, I think even on that case, though, on that case, yeah, it should probably be labeled. Yeah, you know, let me know if it was grown on an animal or grown in a vat. <laughs> well, yeah, and again, we, we come back to this quote. It says, according to the PBFA, it's suing to stop the law from being enforced in order to protect its members' First Amendment rights to label their foods in a way that consumers understand. That makes it sound like consumers understand plant foods to be meat foods. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I'm confused by that. The direct opposite. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, all I think of is those weird-ass like tofu things that are shaped like chickens. Yeah, you know, like sorry, that. it's not chicken. Yeah. The tofurkey is not actually yeah. really turkey. Yeah. yeah. And I still never got that. It's like, uh, why are you shaping your vegetable like an animal? You know, right. Like press this tofu into the shape of a yeah. chicken. It's like, it's, you know, yeah. you really want to eat meat? Just eat it. Right. You know? you know, yeah. If it's that offensive, why does it all look like burgers and chicken legs? Yeah. And, yeah. Yes. Um, now, here's another quote. Again, this is from the PBFA. Um, The Mississippi law that just happened would create unnecessary, confusing, costly label changes that would stifle innovation and frustrate consumers. 
I don't think we any of us are going to agree that it would frustrate consumers to call a plant-based meat alternative to call it what it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, I, I think I'm interpreting this right. I, I, I'll just say it's controversial. So both of these regulatory things, right? But the Atkins people trying to change the um, dietary guidelines or the plant, you know, the fake meat people trying to stop um, the meat labeling law, you know, calling meat what I'm going to be pissed off if I go buy a steak and find out it's fucking broccoli. Like if I got that shit home and I cooked it and I tasted it, I'm like, this is bullshit. You know, I'm going to be angry. Right, right. <laughs> and, you know, me. <laughs> and, you know, you're not going to be that sympathetic with the consumer, other consumers that they say are going to be confused by that. No, yeah. it's it's a meat product. So we, I don't confuse people. It's a, it's a meat food. You know, to me, it's like um, the fruit beverage or fruit drink. Right. If you yeah. see that on the label, backpedal, man, that's high fructose corn syrup garbage, you know, often. I don't want. Yeah, I don't want to flip over my steak and look at the ingredients and I have it more than one. Like there's 27 ingredients. Yeah, binders yeah. And right. This thing together. It should just be meat. Cow, right? Ingredient, <laughs> cow. We'll see. For the public, because you're like, no wonder people are confused. Yes, exactly. They're you know, it's like we can't even agree on what's a meat product and what's <laughs> not a meat product, for crying out loud. Yeah. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And I think, like I said, they're taking almost, well, to your point, Mike, the opposite stance, which seems to be yeah. it confuses consumers not to call it all meat. Yeah. But it's not all meat. Uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, it's hard to argue facts. So. Yeah. yeah. Have we lost that, right? We seem to yeah. be in this era of fake news and, and alternative facts where we, if we can't even agree on what's reality, then we're all yes. in trouble. Yes. You know. Anyway. We have two eyeballs at one point or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, uh, last one. This was editor's choice in the new edition of the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, so very high-end journal. I thought this was very interesting, and it, it reinforces something that I had already been doing, but not because I was clever, just <laughs> lucked out, I guess. Um, a randomized controlled trial contrasting the effects of four low-calorie sweeteners versus basically sucrose, right, table sugar, on body weight in adults uh, with overweight or obesity. So it starts by saying low-calorie sweeteners provide sweetness with little or no calories or energy. Uh, However, each low-calorie sweetener's unique chemical structure has different potential, right? So we need to think about this. Like there are some things that are uh, like equal is essentially two amino acids stuck together. They just happen to be very sweet. You know, sucralose looks like the sucrose molecule, uh, a, a glucose and a fructose stuck together, but then they put some chlorine atoms on it. But anyway, these are very different things, and they're basically saying, what do they do for weight loss? Do they help? Do they not? Because they always lump artificial sweeteners together, I think, when, in the guidelines and whatnot. The purpose of this trial was to compare the effects of the consumption of four low-calorie sweeteners, or artificial sweeteners generally, uh, with sucrose on body weight, ingestive behaviors... So how often someone eats and even glucose tolerance over 12 weeks. And they did this in a broad range of fully adult people from age 18 to 60. Okay. And again, that were overweight results. Um, Over this 12 week intervention, 123 people completed it. Sucrose and saccharin. 
So again, saccharin's the oldest stuff, the pink little packets. Uh, sucrose and saccharin consumption led to increased body weight across the 12-week intervention. So they gained almost two kilograms, so roughly four pounds, um, and did not differ from each other. So if you're using the pink stuff, saccharin, and again, when I say pink stuff, I mean the pink paper you know, packet, like on the restaurant. Is that NutraSweet? Is that right? Um, no, this would just be... Um, What's the saccharin, um, the brand name of it? I, I got to look it up now. Yeah. Saccharin. That's a, like the super old, old one. Right, right. I mean, literally like tab pre. soda. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> tab. <laughs> You're old. <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> yeah, a lot of my college students, like right now, I'm like, do you know there was like one diet soda when, when I was young? It was called tab, and that was it, you know? Yep. Uh, anyway, yeah, so no better than sucrose. Uh, for weight management, which is funny, right? Because it's supposed to be very sweet and calorie-free, essentially. Uh, so you get less sugar calories, but it, it was no different from sugar. Very disturbing. Um, it says, however, the change in body weight for sucralose. So this is the little yellow packets, right? Uh, Splenda. Uh, sucralose was negative. In other words, their body weight went down uh, over the 12-week period, Um Sucralose change was negative and significantly lower com- compared with all other low-calorie sweeteners at week 12. So they lost mm-hmm. about three or four pounds uh, by s- basically using uh, sucralose or Splenda. Uh, energy intake decreased with sucralose. So, in fact, there's a lot of talk about rebound or how people will compensate and make up for calories later if they deny it by having the, you know, the artificial sweetener. Apparently not if you do sucralose at least not significantly so. So when you have your diet pop made with Splenda, you really are ahead, and you're not going to just freak out and go eat more carbs later uh, like you might with certain other ones. The yellow packets, right? The newer newer stuff, and not Stevia, right? But um, energy intake did decrease. It says ingestive frequency was also lower for sucralose than it was for saccharin. So when you compare the newer yellow packets to the old pink packets, people actually did eat less. They they consumed less. They went back to the table, you know, or to the pantry less. Uh, it did say that uh, glucose tolerance wasn't really affected by any of their treatments. But anyway, um, the conclusions are that sucrose and saccharin, again, the older artificial sweetener, actually that was pulled from the market for cancer concerns, but back in the day, back in the days of TAB, uh, there was a lot of concern from diabetics and whatnot that they didn't have many choices, uh, so they brought it back on the market. Anyway, sucrose and saccharin consumption significantly increased body weight over this 12-week period compared with aspartame. That's the blue stuff, right? Uh, uh, REBA, REBA, I think they're talking about stevia there, and, yeah. and sucralose. So sugar and saccharin increased body weight, whereas weight change was directly negative and lower for sucralose compared with these other things. So it looks like the yellow packets are probably a better choice if you actually want to eat less, consume less calories, uh, etc. And then when I went and pulled the actual paper, it did say low-calorie sweeteners are consumed by 31% of American adults. So roughly one out of three Americans. I would think it's even higher than that these days. but Yeah, it seems low. Uh, mm-hmm. So... A couple of years ago, I had switched to the yellow packets, essentially, just because I thought 
over literally 25 years, I consumed the blue packets, right? The <laughs> the equal. Uh, and I just thought, just out of exposure to weird synthetic stuff, maybe I, not that that's always bad, but I'll switch, you know, pick your poison, and I'll switch yeah. to something different. And I started using the yellow stuff. But And it looks like that might be your best choice then. If you're actually after sugar control and weight control, maybe maybe sucralose is better. So yeah. I find it doesn't have a weird aftertaste either. Mm. And the amount they have to use to make it sweet is really small. Yeah. And I did look up saccharin. It's actually sweet and low. Yeah, that's how that's what sweet I was trying to Sweet and think low. Of. Sweet <laughs> and low, yep. That is a blast from the past. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Okay, that's right. There you go. Helpful. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, there it is. There's plenty of mail and news for everybody you know, in these summer months. Hopefully it's helpful. I'll give one more. I want to give a shout-out to some of my clients. So three of my clients flew over to Spain, and they just ran with the bulls last night. So, oh, really? And they all lived. They lived? They all lived. And then uh, Dawson, congratulations. He ran with the bulls, and then he got down on his knee, and, uh, and he's now engaged to his fiance. Oh. So after living through the bull run, he, he uh, decided to propose. Living so, life. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's so, living. Congratulations, guys. Lindsay, Trevor, and... Uh, Dawson, you made it. Awesome. You didn't get a you didn't get a horn up your butt. So. <laughs> you feel your your people they're gonna shove other people out of the way. <laughs> Pick know, up some God. little dude and yeah. shove throw him out of the way. Get it out of the way. <laughs> yeah. Throw somebody in the way. Or in the way, yeah. <laughs> they made it, so <laughs> Well, congrats to them. Yeah. All right. We'll catch up with everybody next time. Let's see you next week, guys. Yep. Hey listeners, have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store. Uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. So we try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good, uh, knee sleeves, wraps of some kind, things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org and um, let us know what you think on the forums and certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening. Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding. Um, 
please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the iradio.org uh, store. Uh, we also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio Podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.